We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 62 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, May 13th, 2021, the day after a big day for the Washington football team. A, the release of the team's 2021 regular season schedule. Although the release was about as anticlimactic as you can get with the entire thing being leaked over the course of the day. But B, Washington agreeing on a deal with unrestricted free agent left tackle Charles Leno Jr. Yes, Washington has reeled in at least one of the two notable free agents who we believe visited with the team on Monday. And Washington now has certifiably, unquestionably, the most offensive line depth that the team has had in years. My thoughts on the schedule and on the Leno signing coming up 
in just a bit. I got my second shot on Wednesday, my second COVID-19 vaccine shot. I got the Moderna shot. Or is it Moderna? I don't know. I've heard it both ways. But anyway, a bit achy, yes, but otherwise fine. I am not bedridden. I am not seeing things, uh, at least not yet. So that's good. I asked the people giving me the shot. I said, so are we going to need boosters? Or do you think these vaccines are going to be it? And the woman said, no, it looks like we're going to need boosters. So that's great news, right? We at some point get to go through all of this all over again in terms of the shots. But hey, you got to do what needs to be done. Hopefully someday. This is all truly over, and we can all throw away our masks. A prediction, by the way, there will be mask-throwing-away parties. There will be mask-burning parties at some point. That's my prediction when it comes to the masks. Speaking of COVID-19, by the way, big news in my state of Maryland. The governor, Larry Hogan, on Wednesday declaring, announcing the lifting of all capacity restrictions on outdoor entertainment, art and sports venues and indoor entertainment venues and conventions and all remaining restrictions on indoor and outdoor dining as of this Saturday, May 15th. The governor also announcing that the state's indoor mask mandate will be lifted as soon as 70% of adults receive at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. So big news in my state of Maryland. Excellent news in my state of Maryland. I feel like I have the perfect soundbite for this too. So as many of you know, I am a pro wrestling fan, have been for years. One of the all-time greats, maybe the greatest of all time, the nature boy Ric Flair in his feud with Hulk Hogan many years ago said the following. Hogan, I'm waiting. Woo! Yes, so I feel like a lot of us in Maryland have been saying that to ourselves. Hogan, we're waiting. Hogan, I'm waiting. Woo! Yes, exactly. But Larry Hogan delivered on Wednesday with the big announcement. Maryland opening up just like Washington, D.C. is opening up. Obviously, you do these things safely. You do these things smartly. But you do do these things. You don't have to keep everything shut down, okay? Especially when the data tells us that opening things up doesn't automatically mean more cases and more deaths. So, Good job by Hogan, and hopefully the metrics continue to go in a favorable way in not just our area, uh, but throughout the country and throughout the world. So good news there. Uh, as for some bad news, another loss for the Wizards on Wednesday night, another loss for the Nationals on Wednesday night, and another loss for the Orioles on Wednesday. I'll talk about all three later in the show. Wizards do still look like they're going to make the Eastern Conference play-in tournament, but the Wizards have not clinched a spot in that Eastern Conference play-in tournament just yet. And the Nats now officially have a Brad Hand problem. Another blown save for him on Wednesday night. A brutal loss to Bryce Harper and the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park as once again, the Nationals offense underwhelmed. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So I've gotten a lot of feedback to our Washington football team tight end discussion that we had on Tuesday's installment of the podcast, episode 60. Email from Frank in Palm Bay, Florida. Writes Frank, I listen to your podcast every day. Thank you, Frank. Wondering why haven't you mentioned Dion Yelder in the tight end discussion? Thanks. I love this email because this email captures perfectly the sickness that so many of you listening have when it comes to following the Washington football team. The fact that someone would take the time to email me to say, why haven't you mentioned Dion Yelder? And I love it. I say that as a compliment to you, Frank, in Palm Bay, Florida. Yeah, I mean, in talking about the tight ends, I dealt with the ones who would appear to be the most significant ones, would appear to be the ones 
most likely to make the season opening roster. But you know what? To your point, Frank, you never know with this stuff. So while I, of course, talked about Logan Thomas and John Bates and Samis Reyes and even a little bit of Tamara Kemingway, Dion Yelder is also a part of the Washington football team. Washington on May 5th announced the signing of Yelder. He had been an unrestricted free agent. He's going into his age 26 season. Yelder entered the NFL May 2018 with the New Orleans Saints as an undrafted rookie out of Western Kentucky. Began the 2018 season on the Saints practice squad. Was cut from that in early October 2018, but then was quickly signed by the Kansas City Chiefs. Ended up spending the last three seasons with the Chiefs, 2018 through 2020. So to me, if a guy is good enough to last with Andy Reid for multiple seasons, he deserves a look-see. And Deion Yelder, sure enough, is getting a look-see here by Washington. Now, it's not like Yelder played a lot or did a lot. Three seasons with the Chiefs, played in 26 regular season games, had 10 receptions for 86 yards on 15 targets, but he's an option. There's nothing wrong with having an option like this on your roster. So yeah, there you go, Frank. Dion Yelder analysis has been provided on the podcast. Email from Billy D in North Carolina about the tight end stuff. Really enjoyed your discussion of the tight end situation on the WFT. I do think you omitted another possibility. There are two players on the WFT roster who the coaching staff could be considering giving a shot at a receiving tight end position. Those two players are Antonio Gandy-Golden and Kelvin Harmon. Both have the size and the hands to move to tight end. With the depth at receiver, I would not be surprised if one or both of these young receivers is given a try at tight end. We all know Coach Ron loves position flexibility. Yes, he does. I.E. position flex. Position flex. Thank you, Ron. Uh, Yes, so Kelvin Harmon moving to tight end has come up in the past. The fact that he's coming off that torn right ACL and torn right LCL makes me think that Washington probably would be a little reluctant to throw onto his plate, in addition to the injury rehab now, a position change. Uh, kind of the same thing, too, with Antonio Gandy-Golden. Remember, he barely played last season. It really was a lost rookie season in so many ways for AGG. Played in just six games, totaled just one reception on three targets, spent a good chunk of the season on the reserve slash injured list due to a hamstring injury. Doesn't mean that it would be impossible for either guy to make the position switch this offseason. But I, I think especially in the case of Gandy-Golden, it's like, why don't we see what the guy can be as a receiver and then say, all right, it's maybe not great for you at receiver. Let's try you out at tight end. We haven't heard anything in the way of Harmon or Gandy Golden being moved to tight end. So I would think if that was going to happen, we would have heard something along those lines by now. But, you know, with Harmon coming off his injury, with Gandy Golden having not really gotten a true chance yet to establish his footing in the NFL, I would say give these guys a chance at receiver and then figure things out. I mean, remember, you can keep as many receivers as you want. And sometimes teams keep as little as, say, five receivers on a season opening roster, but you can do eight. I mean, that has happened. Washington years ago did do that when Mike Shanahan was head coach. So if you have an abundance of receivers you like, and you have this great depth at receiver, and you don't want to practice squad anyone because you're afraid of exposing those someones to waivers, go ahead and keep a bunch of receivers on your roster. You know, there are worse things you can do, especially if you only end up keeping, say, two to three tight ends on the roster. You know, we'll see. The, the, The roster construction is going to be tricky, but it is doable, right? Position flex allows for roster construction flexibility. Position flex. There you go, Ron. Thank you very much. Well, I don't know if he can play tight end. I should ask him the next time I talk to him. But I do know that Dr. Matthew Mintz can take care of people. In that regard, he's Travis Kelsey. Dr. Matthew Mintz, big supporter of the Al Galdi podcast. His practice really is the antithesis of so much of what's wrong 
with healthcare right now. As you likely know, our healthcare system is, shall we say, far from perfect. You want to see a doctor, you have to book an appointment three months out. Then when your appointment finally arrives, you have to wait in the waiting room for like an hour. Then the actual appointment ends up being short and not to your satisfaction. And if you have a question days later, forget about getting a call back from your doctor in a timely fashion. Well, Dr. Matthew Mintz is pushing back on all of this. He is an internal medicine and primary care physician whose concierge membership practice allows for old-fashioned personalized care in which every patient is a person, not a number. Dr. Mintz offers next day, even same day appointments, longer appointment times, 24-7 after hours access. And how about this lab work that's done in the office. So you don't have to go schlepping all over town to get your blood drawn. Also, unlike most other concierge practices, Dr. Matthew Mintz can generate invoices for patients that can be submitted for reimbursement from most insurances. His office is located in Bethesda in the Wildwood Medical Center across the street from Balducci's. He's a big Washington football team fan. He is a loyal listener of this podcast, and he offers a free meet and greet in person or virtual so you can see if his practice is right for you. Set up your free meet and greet by going to drmints.com. That's drmints.com, D-R-M-I-N-T-Z.com. Or call Dr. Mintz's office, tell his office that you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, the free meet and greet. The phone number is 855-646-8963. That's 855-646-8963. Dr. Matthew Mintz, an internal medicine and primary care physician who provides medical care the way you like it, the way it used to be, and the way it should be, and tell him Al Galdi sent you. All right, so the Washington football team's 2021 regular season schedule was officially released on Wednesday night, although games on the schedule were leaked, if not released, throughout the day, and Washington's entire 2021 regular season schedule ended up being leaked. I think the NFL moving forward really has to seriously consider doing the schedule release in a different way. If the NFL cares about actually being the source of the announcing of these schedules, like if the NFL doesn't mind all the leaks, then go ahead and keep doing this as is, where on a weeknight during the offseason, you announce a schedule, and if a bunch of stuff gets leaked out in the hours prior to the official announcement, then so be it. But if the NFL really wants to control the announcing of the schedules, the NFL probably needs to start announcing the schedules like at 7 o'clock in the morning or something like that, just to avoid all of the leaks, which have become a regular thing now every year on NFL schedule day. So what I normally do upon Washington's regular season schedule coming out is I tell you what I like and don't like. I will do that in just a moment, but I will preface this by saying that there's a lot that I like and not much that I don't like. Uh, trust me, I'm not above complaining and whining about a Washington football team schedule, but I don't really see much reason to complain or whine with this schedule. The NFL, to me, was more than fair to Washington with this schedule. So my thoughts. First of all, the buy. This is always the first thing I look for. When is Washington's buy? I like that Washington's 2021 buy is in week nine. This will mark a third consecutive season in which Washington has a mid-season buy, which to me is what you always want. We're now dealing with an 18-week regular season. So you want your buy, you know, in that range of, you know, week seven, week eight, week nine, week 10, that kind of a thing. Well, you look at where Washington is at week nine, perfectly acceptable buy. And like I said, third straight season in which Washington has, by my standards anyway, a perfectly acceptable buy. 2019 buy was week 10, 2020 buy week eight, and now the 2021 buy week nine. Now, remember, prior to this stretch of three consecutive acceptable buys, Washington had had an early buy 
in back-to-back seasons. This to me was outrageous. 2017 bye for Washington was week five. 2018 bye for Washington was week four. And those two early buys proved to be especially bad given how injury-ravaged Washington ended up becoming in each of those two seasons. Remember all the different offensive line combinations that Washington had to utilize in 2017? We all remember all of the quarterback injuries that Washington dealt with in 2018. And yet in 17, you had a week five bye. In 18, you had a week four bye. Could have used a later bye in each season. Didn't get that. The NFL, to me, should just stop with these early season buys, period. Like, with an 18-week season now, the NFL should not have any buys until at least week seven. Like, why can't the league just condense all teams' buys into like a five-week stretch of, say, week seven through 11? Just go ahead and do it that way. And at the very least, you'll avoid things like what Washington has dealt with. Again, week four buy. I mean, week four, you have your bye week as Washington did in the 2018 season. That, to me, is absurd. Uh, also, with Washington's 2021 regular season schedule, I like that Washington, mercifully, is not playing on Thanksgiving. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, Danny, happy Thanksgiving to you as well. So Washington had played on Thanksgiving in four of the previous five seasons, had actually won some of the games, went two and two over the four games. Thanksgiving 2016, you had the 31-26 loss at the Dallas Cowboys, a game in which Kirk Cousins played out of his mind. This may have been the best game he ever played for Washington. Maybe the best game he's ever played, period. 41 of 53 for 449 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. He took no sacks. He registered a total QBR per ESPN for the game of 87.2, which is outstanding. QBRs on a scale of 0 to 100. But Washington's defense, which was horrible that season, struggled. Uh, Thanksgiving 2017, you had a win, a 2010 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field in one of the new Thursday night games on Thanksgiving. Jamison Crowder on that night, big game, seven receptions for 141 yards and a touchdown on 10 targets. And Samaj Pirine, one of Jay Gruden's favorites, 24 carries for 100 yards. Thanksgiving 2018, another loss at Dallas, 31-23 loss at the Dallas Cowboys. That game, you may recall, was the lone Colt McCoy complete game as Washington's QB1 of Alex Smith getting injured four days earlier in the loss of the Houston Texans at FedEx Field. Remember, Alex suffered his broken right leg. Colt started the next game. Then Colt himself suffered a broken right leg. And then came Mark Sanchez. And then came Josh Johnson. But anyway, this Thanksgiving loss at Dallas in 2018, Colt McCoy was not good. Things did not go well for Colt in this game. 24-38 for 268, two touchdowns, but three picks, and the interception total could have been worse. Also had a fumble in being sacked three times, hit eight times. His total QBR per ESPN in that game, a mere 26.5. But last season, what happened on Thanksgiving, right? Not just a Washington win at the Dallas Cowboys, but a blowout Washington victory. 41-16 was the final. Washington ran the ball down the Cowboys' throats. Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick, Peyton Barber combining for 32 carries for 178 yards and three touchdowns. Cowboys, remember, were injury ravaged and on their first offensive drive of the game lost their two starting offensive tackles, the left tackle, Cameron Irving, the right tackle, Zach Martin. Dallas going into this game already was without its true starting offensive tackles and left tackle Tyron Smith and right tackle Lyle Collins. Each guy had long since been placed on the team's reserve slash injured list. But whatever, Washington with the blowout win. So my point is Washington actually has won some of these Thanksgiving games in recent seasons. But for me, and I get that this is subjective, but for me, 
I'm not a fan of Washington playing on Thanksgiving as often as had been the case. I don't mind it every so often, every few years, but four times in five years was overkill, okay? It's a short week. It's a tough spot to be in, you know, from the perspective of us as fans, like it's nice to enjoy your Thanksgiving and not have to be stressed out about how your football team is going to end up doing. Washington, by the way, four and eight all time on Thanksgiving. While I don't like when Washington plays in prime time, I do like that the NFL is back to showing some respect to Washington with its 2021 regular season schedule. So Washington's 2021 regular season schedule has three scheduled primetime games. And you have to keep saying that scheduled because things can change. You can be flexed into primetime. You can be flexed out of primetime. But as things stand now, week two, Washington set to host the New York Giants on Thursday night football. That's not going to be changed. But week 12, Washington set to host the Seattle Seahawks on Monday night football. And week 16, Washington scheduled to play at the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday night football on December 26th. So the night after Christmas, Washington at Dallas on Sunday night football. So you have a Thursday nighter, you have a Monday nighter, and you have a Sunday nighter. Now, yes, Washington did end up playing a primetime game this past season, right? The 2014 win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday night football in week 17 to clinch the NFC East. But remember, Washington went into the 2020 season and went through much of the season having zero scheduled primetime games. It looked for the longest time like Washington's 2020 regular season was going to be the franchise's first regular season since 1982 without a regular season primetime game that ended up not being the case. And no, I am not counting the victory at the Pittsburgh Steelers as a primetime game. That was a rescheduled game that ended up happening technically on a Monday evening, not on a Monday night. But Washington has gotten distant recent seasons when it comes to primetime games. And we all know, right, primetime games, how many of those you get, that's a sign of how much the NFL believes in you as a draw, believes in you as a team. Washington's 2019 schedule marked the first time since the NFL's 2002 realignment that not a single one of Washington's NFC East games was a primetime game or a Thanksgiving game. I mean, understand over the years, Washington primetime games, Washington Thanksgiving games have done very well ratings-wise. Remember, Washington, D.C. is a top 10 television market in this country. So things like Washington at Dallas on Thanksgiving, that has been a major ratings generator for the networks for years. That's part of why Washington has been playing on Thanksgiving so much in recent seasons. But when it comes to these primetime games, Washington, because it's been a bad team with some wretched recent results in primetime games, we were not seeing much of Washington in primetime. The brutal history, though, for Washington in primetime games really does have to do with Monday night football, not nearly as much as Sunday night football. And Thursday night football, there really just has not been that much of a sample, although Washington's recent Thursday night football history isn't good. But here are the numbers with Washington on Monday night football. This really is the thing. When people talk about Washington is bad in primetime, it's really Washington is bad on Monday night football. Washington all-time at FedEx Field on Monday night football, you ready for this, is 2-17. and 17. Not very good. No, Steve Spurrier. That's not very good. Washington, since the start of the 2008 season overall on Monday Night Football, home and away, is 2-16. and 16. Not very good. Exactly. Washington on Monday Night Football since the start of the 2001 season, home and away, 2-21. and 21. Not very good. Exactly. The lone two wins for Washington on Monday Night Football since the start of the 2001 season are 
the 17-16 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field in December 2012, and the 2017 overtime win at the Dallas Cowboys in October 2014, and yes, the famous Colt-McCoy game. Now, like I said, Washington's recent history on Thursday night football isn't very good. There haven't been that many instances of Washington playing on Thursday night football. I'm excluding Thanksgiving games. But you've had things like the 34-27 loss at the Minnesota Vikings in November 2013, what was the first of Washington's eight consecutive losses that ended the team's 3-13 and 2013 season, ended the Mike Shanahan era. Washington lost that game of the Vikings, by the way, despite a big game from Alfred Morris, 26 carries for 139 yards. And actually, RG3 had one of his better games in his bad 2013 season in that loss at the Vikings in the Thursday nighter. September 2014, one of the worst primetime losses Washington has ever had. 45-14 loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday night football. And what I forever call the Larry Donnell game. Do you remember this game? Washington allowed an obscure Giants tight end named Larry Donnell to have seven receptions for 54 yards and three touchdowns on eight targets. All three touchdown catches came in the first half. And this game in so many ways has come to epitomize Washington's perpetual struggles covering opposing tight ends. Uh, also in this game was Kirk Cousins throwing four interceptions. You had a 32-21 loss at the New York Giants on Thursday Night Football, September 2015. You had a 38-14 loss at the Dallas Cowboys on Thursday Night Football in November 2017, the week after Thanksgiving. That was kind of odd. Washington in 2017 played on Thanksgiving, but not at Dallas. Was home to the Giants at FedEx Field. Ended up winning that game. But then the next week, Washington was at the Cowboys on a Thursday night game. So Washington played on back-to-back Thursdays in 2017. And that loss at the Cowboys on Thursday Night Football in November 2017, this game should always be remembered for what Cowboys running back Alfred Morris did. Alf scorching his original team to the tune of 27 carries for a buck 27 and a touchdown. And then the last time Washington played on Thursday Night Football, October 2019, a 19-9 loss at the Minnesota Vikings. Dwayne Haskins serving as Washington's number two quarterback for the third time in as many games under interim head coach Bill Callahan, playing for the entire second half due to Case Keenum suffering a concussion in the first half. And Dwayne was awful. Three of five for 33 yards, no touchdowns and interception. And he took two sacks. He registered for the game a total QBR per ESPN of 0.1. Not very good. Yes. Again, QBR is on a scale of 0 to 100. Wayne Wayne's total QBR in that game at the Minnesota Vikings, 19-9 loss, Thursday night football, October 2019. A total QBR of 0.1. Not very good. So here's something that I'm not sure yet how to feel about. Time will tell how we ultimately feel about this. I'm not sure whether to like how weirdly dispersed Washington's NFC East games are in the team's 2021 regular season schedule. This is odd. Washington's first NFC East game this coming season is home to the New York Giants on Thursday Night Football in Week 2. That is Washington's only NFC East game over the first 13 weeks of the season. Each of Washington's final five games in the 2021 regular season is an NFC East game. So you go from one division game over the first 13 weeks to five consecutive division games 
to close out the regular season. Week 14, Washington home to the Dallas Cowboys. Week 15, Washington at the Philadelphia Eagles. Week 16, Washington at the Cowboys. Week 17, Washington home to the Eagles. And then week 18, Washington at the Giants. So it's not just five consecutive NFC East games to end Washington's regular season. It's that your first division game of the season is all the way back in week two, home to the Giants. And then you don't play the Giants again until the last game of the regular season. In the meantime, you have two games in three weeks against the Cowboys, two games in three weeks against the Eagles. That is strange. That is bizarre. I can never remember anything close to that happening with Washington in a regular season. Now, for what it's worth, there is kind of sort of this trend for the rest of the division, although not nearly as extreme. For the Dallas Cowboys, four of their final five games in the regular season are NFC East games. For the Philadelphia Eagles, five of their final six games in the 2021 regular season are NFC East games. Uh, The Eagles, by the way, have a week 14 bye. That's strange. And then for the New York Giants, four of their final seven games in the 2021 regular season are NFC East games. So you have this to an extent with the other teams, but not a single one of the three other teams in the division has what Washington has. Again, an NFC East game in week two, and then not another one until the final five games of the season. But understand this, and this is why I actually think this could end up being a competitive advantage for Washington. Ron Rivera, over the years, does his best work late in regular seasons. Ron Rivera, as we speak on this Thursday, has, as a head coach, gone 49-34 and 34 in November December, and January regular season games. His teams routinely have played their best late in seasons. Washington last regular season went five and four over the team's November, December, and January regular season games. Ron is Carolina Panthers head coach when a ridiculous 41 and 19 over his first seven seasons in November, December, and January regular season games. Think about that. 41 and 19, 41 out of 60. Ron won as a head coach with the Panthers over his first seven seasons in terms of November, December, and January regular season games. And all time, Ron is a head man, 15 games above 500 in November, December, and January regular season games. So if it becomes as simple as, hey, just win your divisional games and you're back in the postseason for a second straight year, this actually sets up quite nicely given Ron's history of doing his best work late in seasons. Ron's teams consistently get better as seasons go on. That's one of the best things you can ever say about a coach in any sport. I like Washington not having three consecutive road games at any point in the 2021 regular season. You know, Washington last regular season had three consecutive road games in a season for the first time since the 2016 season for just the second time since the 2002 season. The NFL likes to avoid this, but it does happen. Washington had this happen last year, right? Three straight road games at the Dallas Cowboys on Thanksgiving, followed by at the Pittsburgh Steelers, followed by at the San Francisco 49ers, although that game ended up being played in Arizona. Of course, the irony to all of this is Washington ended up going 3-0 and over those three consecutive road games. So that's one of the great lessons you'll ever have with the schedule, right? Of Something that seems impossible in May can end up being done come November, December, right? Things change. Circumstances are altered. But it is good to me that Washington does not have three straight road games at any point in the 2021 season. So this is going to be different, right? A 17-game schedule for every NFL team. NFL owners on March 30th at the annual league meeting approving the expansion of the regular season 
to 17 games per team. This was something that was allowed for in the new collective bargaining agreement that was approved by the owners February 2020, then ratified by the players in March 2020. Part of the new CBA was the addition of two teams to the playoff field for the 2020 season and an option to increase the regular season to 17 games beginning with the 2021 season. This is the first change to the NFL's regular season schedule in three plus decades. The NFL from 1990 through 2020 had nothing but 16 game regular seasons over 17 weeks with the exception of 1993 when we had the 16 game regular season over 18 weeks, right? You had two buys that season, 93. The lone season for poor Richard Pettibone as Washington's head coach. Things did not go well uh, that season and then came North Turner and uh, well, a whole lot has happened since then. The composition of the 17-game schedule, six intra-division games, four games against a designated division within your conference. So for Washington and the rest of the NFC East teams in 2021, that division is the NFC South. Four games against a designated division in the opposite conference for Washington and the rest of the NFC East teams in 2021. That division is the AFC West. You have two games against teams from the two remaining divisions in your conference, one game at home, one game on the road. Those matchups are based on division rankings from the previous season. So here is where how you did in 2020 impacts who you face in 2021. The whole thing about a first place schedule, that's a very overrated thing over the years because 14 of your games are predetermined. So this whole thing about, oh, it's a first place schedule. Prior to this coming season, that only impacted two of your 16 games. Now that's going to impact three of your 16 games. Washington, in finishing first last season, is going to be facing the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field, is going to be playing at the Green Bay Packers. That's under the traditional rule of two games against teams from the two remaining divisions in your conference. And then the 17th game, that's a game against your cross-conference division from two years prior with the 2021 matchup based on 2020 standings and with AFC teams hosting for 2021. So for Washington this coming season, that game is at the Buffalo Bills, who finished first in the AFC East in 2020. So the three opponents determined by Washington winning the NFC East at 7-9 and nine last year are the Seattle Seahawks at home and the Green Bay Packers and Buffalo Bills on the road. Not easy. That does, in theory, make things more difficult, although we'll see how each team is doing and we'll see if the Packers still have Aaron Rodgers as their quarterback. But no doubt, the opposing quarterbacks for Washington this upcoming season, based on the team having won the division, are set to be Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, and Josh Allen. That's not easy. Washington did feast on some bad quarterbacks in 2020. There's no denying that, okay? Carson Wentz, who was awful. Andy Dalton, and then Ben DiNucci. You know, Ryan Finley in place of the injured Joe Burrow. Andy Dalton again. Nick Mullins. Nate Sudfeld in place of the bench Jalen Hurts. You get the idea. But I'll leave you with this when it comes to Washington's 2021 schedule. If, in fact, you are concerned about the schedule on paper being so difficult and the schedule on paper featuring a truckload of high-level quarterbacks, the bulk of Washington's tougher opponents on paper will be playing at FedEx Field. So if you believe in the home field advantage, and who knows what to expect this upcoming season in terms of crowds, in terms of fans, to say nothing of traditionally what attendance has been like at FedEx Field in recent years. Consider this. Week one, Justin Herbert and the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field. Week six, Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs at FedEx Field. Week 10, the first game after the week nine bye, Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field. Week 12, Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field. You get the idea. So again, we'll see who's healthy, who's with who, But that's something that should make you feel better if you are nervous, if you are concerned 
about the potential murders row of opposing quarterbacks that Washington is set to face in 2021. You tell me what you think. You can hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Now to the major acquisition that Washington has made. So it was on Monday that the Washington football team was supposed to have hosted two unrestricted free agents, two recently cut veterans in left tackle Charles Leno Jr. and free safety Bobby McCain. We had heard very little regarding where things stood with those guys and Washington until we got the news on Wednesday that Washington has agreed on a deal with Leno. Washington is signing Charles Leno Jr. The contract is a one-year $5 million deal, according to Leno's agent. Leno, as you likely know by now, released by the Chicago Bears. That happened now two Mondays ago on May 3rd. So a few points. Point number one, this is a great, low-cost, no-risk signing. You may not think Charles Leno Jr. is any good anymore. I would challenge you on that. But, you know, if you think that, okay, fine. This is a nothing contract. One year, $5 million. This is the kind of signing that is exactly what the second and third waves of free agency are about. Value buys of guys who have lingered in free agency. You know, think potentially Ryan Kerrigan. We'll see. Or guys who get cut later in the offseason, right? Leno obviously fits that latter category. Charles Leno Jr. has been a staple at left tackle for years in the NFL. He was a rock for the Bears. He was incredibly durable for the Bears. Leno over his final six seasons for Chicago, 2015 through 2020, played in all 96 regular season games. He, for the last 93 of those games, was the Bears starting left tackle. You're getting reliability with this guy. You're getting experience with this guy. You're getting a guy who has demonstrated an ability to play at a high level. Charles Leno Jr. is not that old. You're not getting someone who's like 38, okay? 2021 season said to be Leno's age 30 season. That's it. Uh, Charles Leno Jr. is a great story. Bears took Leno in the seventh round of the 2014 NFL draft at a Boise State. He's a classic overachiever. He's someone who very much seems to fit the Rod Rivera culture. So this to me, again, great low cost, no risk signing. Point number two off Washington agreeing on this deal with Charles Leno Jr. Regarding who now is going to be Washington's starting left tackle, I would put it to you like this. Charles Leno Jr. certainly has a great chance of being Washington's starting left tackle, Washington's LT1, but don't just assume that he will be Washington's LT1. So first of all, Leno did have a mixed 2020 season. I mean, there's a reason that Chicago released Charles Leno Jr. Leno, last regular season for Pro Football Focus, an overall grade of 74.6, pass blocking grade of 69.4, run blocking grade of 74.5. The pass blocking was the thing. Leno per PFF last regular season allowed five sacks, allowed 42 total pressures. For comparison's sake, Cornelius Lucas's overall grade in the 2020 regular season for Pro Football Focus was 78.2. Leno's again was 74.6. I mean, not that you should get caught up in to the decimal point what each guy's grade was and what that means in terms of who's better, but Leno was surpassed by Lucas last season in terms of overall PFF grade. And if you just look at what each guy did at left tackle and nothing else last regular season, Leno had an overall grade per PFF of 74.9. Lucas had an overall grade per PFF of 78.9. So it very well may be that Cornelius Lucas remains Washington's best option 
at left tackle. Additionally, there's Samuel Cosme, the offensive tackle out of Texas, right? Washington spending its 2021 second round pick on Cosme. Cosme is an athletic freak. You know, Cosme with what he did at the Texas Pro Day in terms of the relative athletic score metric is number two, number two out of 1,119 offensive tackle prospects from 1987 through 2021. Rod Rivera has said that the plan is to start Cosme off at left tackle. So Samuel Cosme is to be heard from. So we'll see with Charles Leno Jr. He might end up being Washington's week one starter at left tackle, but I wouldn't just assume that. You've got real options here in Cornelius Lucas and Samuel Cosme. Point number three off Washington agreeing on a deal with Charles Leno Jr. Charles Leno Jr. gives Washington incredible depth at left tackle and continues the transformation of Washington's offensive line from having paper-thin depth to being potentially now the second deepest position group on the team after the defensive line. Think about this. If, If I say to you, okay, what is the deepest position group on the Washington football team? You almost certainly say defensive line. But if I say, okay, well, which group is number two? you now very much so can make the case for the offensive line. Just think about left tackle, okay? Potential left tackles on Washington now are Leno, Lucas, Cosme, Jaron Christian, who remember was Washington's starting left tackle to begin last season, Sadiq Charles, who was a high-level left tackle at LSU. Maybe he's going to be a guard. We'll see. But again, an option. I mean, how about that? Leno, Lucas, Cosme, Kristen, Charles, five guys potentially who you can look at at the left tackle spot as being viable options. Left guard, you know, if we just move along the offensive line here, potential left guards on Washington as we speak. Eric Flowers, Wes Schweitzer, Wes Martin, you know, Charles, again, a possibility. You're at the very least, in theory, three deep at left guard of having had like no depth at left guard forever. So many of these guys, by the way, who I've mentioned here brought to Washington by Ron Rivera over the last two off seasons. The job that Ron Rivera and the offensive line coach John Matsko have done in cultivating this offensive line depth in a very short period of time really can't be overstated. I mean, just think for a moment about the trade to bring back Eric Flowers. You know, this kind of sneakily happened just a few weeks ago. We're headed into the NFL draft, and then out of nowhere, what? Washington is traded for Eric Flowers? April 27th, right? Just two days before the first round of the 2021 draft, Washington trading the first of its two seventh-round picks in the 2021 draft to the Miami Dolphins for Flowers and the penultimate pick in the 2021 draft. Additionally, the Dolphins picked up a decent chunk of the money owed to Flowers for the upcoming season. He was set to get paid $9 million in 2021. The Dolphins and Flowers agreed to a contract restructure by which he got a $6 million signing bonus from the Dolphins. So Washington only on the hook for $3 million when it comes to Flowers in 2021. Like this signing of Charles Leno Jr., a no-risk, no-brainer of an acquisition that adds to Washington's depth on the offensive line. Now, it's not like Washington has had zero offensive line depth in recent seasons. Washington did have depth uh, at tackle over Ty and Secchi's four seasons with the team, 2015 through 2018. Remember in Secchi, he started 16 regular season games over those four seasons. He started the equivalent of an entire regular season over his four regular seasons with the team. I mean, with Trent Williams, with him getting injured and suspended, uh, you needed someone who you could go to when you didn't have Trent and Ty and Secchi was that someone, Ty Seki started 14 regular season games 
over his final three seasons with Washington, 2016 through 2018, and at times played at a really high level. I'll never forget the game in which Alex Smith got hurt, the 23-21 loss to the Houston Texans at FedEx Field, week 11 of the 2018 season. Ty Insecki dominated Jadevian Clowney in that game. Ty Insecki swallowed Clowney in that game. So you had depth with him, but beyond Ty Insecki, Washington has not had much offensive line depth for years. And a guy in a situation that sort of epitomized this to me, Sean Laval. You remember Sean Laval at left guard? Laval was Washington's starting left guard for five seasons, 2014 through 2018. But Laval played in just 46 of a possible 80 regular season games with Washington due to injury. Now, he started all 46 of those games, but he just couldn't stay healthy. And like every year, Washington had to piecemeal together left guard because Sean Laval, who was counted on season in, season out, despite like almost never staying healthy, was hurt again. And you needed to figure out, okay, well, who's going to be a starting left guard now because Sean Laval is injured again. You didn't have enough depth. Well, Ron Rivera and John Matsko are trying to change that here. And this signing of Charles Leno Jr. is a continuation of this change. It's one of the underrated developments for Washington since Ron Rivera came here, how the offensive line has gone from being so shallow in terms of depth to now, again, maybe being the second deepest position group on the team. The Wizards on Wednesday night had a magic number of one to clinch a spot in the NBA's play-in tournament. The Wizards on Wednesday night had a 13-point fourth quarter lead, but the Wizards did not clinch. They lost. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, exactly. Wizards fell to 32-38, and a 120-116 loss at the Atlanta Hawks. Second consecutive loss for the Wizards, both games at the Hawks. First time that the Wizards have lost two consecutive games since the four-game losing streak, March 30th through April 5th. Yes, it had been more than a month since the Wizards had lost two straight games. Tells you something about how well the Wizards have been doing. So every spot in the Eastern Conference playoffs and the Eastern Conference playing tournament has been clinched except the final spot in the playing tournament. That spot will go to either the Wizards or the Chicago Bulls. All the Wizards have to do to clinch a spot in this play-in tournament is win one of their remaining two regular season games. And the Wizards may not need to even do that, but the Wiz host the Cleveland Cavaliers Friday night at 7, then host the Charlotte Hornets on Sunday in a game that remains TBD. The Bulls have three regular season games left, including hosting the Toronto Raptors Thursday night at 8. So if the Wizards just get a win or the Bulls just get a loss, the Wizards are in the Eastern Conference play-in tournament. Wizards now are a game and a half behind both the Hornets, who are 8th in the East, and the Indiana Pacers, who are ninth in the East. So it is looking more and more like the Wiz will be the 10th seed in the Eastern Conference, should the Wizards seal the deal and clinch the spot in the play-in tournament. Wizards now, by the way, are 14-26 and against Eastern Conference teams this season, as compared to being 18-12 and against Western Conference teams. So with this game, this loss at the Hawks, on Wednesday night. Wizards blowing, like I said, a 13-point fourth quarter lead, allowing the Hawks to end the game on a 33-16 run. The game ended up being the fourth quarter, and the Wizards got shelled in the fourth quarter. Lost the fourth quarter 37-25. The Wizards in the fourth quarter went just one of seven on threes and allowed the Hawks to go five of 11 on threes, including Bogdan Bogdanovich and John Collins 
going a combined five of eight on threes. Collins hit a dagger, a wide-open 23-foot go-ahead left corner three for a 117-116 Hawks lead with just under 25 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Also, the Wizards in that fourth quarter out-rebounded 14-7. No Bradley Beal for the Wizards for a second consecutive game due to his left hamstring strain, so that needs to be understood. Wizards also, of course, continue to be without two other starters and Denny Abdia and Thomas Bryant. Russell Westbrook did not have a triple-double on Wednesday night. It did have an overall good game, although there's sort of a caveat to attach to that. So first of all, Westbrook for the game, four of nine on threes. You like that. Did only go eight of 19 on his twos, six of eight on free throws, but he finished with 34 points, 15 assists versus four turnovers, five rebounds and three steals in 39 minutes, 48 seconds as a starter. The problem with Westbrook was he was not good shooting in the second half. He went just four of 14 from the field in the second half. So that was the issue with Westbrook. But I mean, again, he's been so good lately and he did a lot well in this game on Wednesday night. So the shooting wasn't great in the second half, that's true. But the turnovers were down. Another big game in terms of scoring, another monster game in terms of assists. I mean, 15 assists, an unusually low rebounding total for Westbrook. And of course, it's all relative. Five rebounds for most point guards. Uh, the point guards are doing cartwheels over. But for Westbrook, that's a disappointment because we're so used to him being in double-digit territory with rebounds. Uh, Rui Hachimura had 11 points on 5 of 11 shooting, 6 rebounds, 3 assists, no turnovers in 30 minutes, 23 seconds as a starter. Alex Len gave the Wizards some good minutes, although more on that in a moment. So Len continues to start, 33rd consecutive start, played for 23 minutes, 56 seconds, had just 6 points on 2 of 6 shooting, but he also had 10 rebounds, 2 assists, versus no turnovers and two steals. And Haul Neto, who continues to start, 14 straight starts now for him, 14 points, 5 of 10 shooting, 3 rebounds, 2 assists, no turnovers, and 28.50 as a starter. It was another big game for the Wizards bench, but here was the thing that was a big topic during head coach Scott Brooks's virtual postgame press conference. So Daniel Gafford was back to putting up big numbers off the bench on Wednesday night. 16 points on 8 of 11 shooting and 4 rebounds in 16.47 off the bench. He played, Gafford did, for just 447 in the fourth quarter. And Gafford not playing more was a big topic during Brooks's virtual postgame press conference. The Wizards have been going with this three-headed center monster where Alex Len starts and Daniel Gafford and Robin Lopez come off the bench. What has been peculiar has been, while Gafford has been this find you know, this revelation over the last few weeks and this great trade that Tommy Shepard made at the NBA trade deadline. And Gafford, you know, is young and he's athletic and he's got this length and he can be a rim protector and he has these monster dunks and he generates these blocks. Gafford consistently doesn't play a lot. And no one's really 100% sure why. It's a weird deal. Daniel Gafford on Wednesday night played for less than 17 minutes for a sixth consecutive game. Why a guy who's put up the per-minute production that Gafford has continues to play for so little, I don't really understand. Now, maybe Brooks believes that less is more with Gafford, and maybe Brooks believes that conditioning or fatigue is an issue with Gafford. I know there was a minutes restriction for a while, but at some point here, right? I mean, you're fighting to make this play-in tournament. Presumably, this is not a tanking situation like the Wizards want to make the play-in tournament. Why not more of Gafford? And I mentioned Len, and it's not like he did nothing on Wednesday night. Again, 10 rebounds, two assists, no turnovers, two steals. But Len is not the athletic force that Gafford is. So let Gafford play. Free Daniel Gafford. And for whatever reason, we continue to see Daniel Gafford's minutes limited to never more 
than 17 minutes here. At least lately, that's been the case. And I, I just, I don't understand that. Brooks got peppered with these questions after the loss on Wednesday night, and justifiably so. But the bench was good. I mean, Gafford was good. Chandler Hutchison, who's come along here in recent games, he was good again. Eight points, two of five shooting, five rebounds in 15-42 off the bench. Ish Smith gave the Wizards more good minutes off the bench. Went just three and nine from the field, but he had six points, six assists versus no turnovers and five rebounds in 27 minutes, 52 seconds off the bench. And then there was Davies Bertans. You know, if Davies Bertans was any other player with any other contract, you'd look at what he did off the bench on Wednesday night and you'd celebrate it. 4-10 on threes, 14 points, four rebounds, two steals in 31-22. But Bertans, of course, isn't any other player off the bench. He's got an $80 million contract that the Wizards gave him this past offseason. He has been a disappointment so far this year. And Bertans in the fourth quarter on Wednesday night, just one of five on threes. Now, his final missed three-point attempt was a desperation heave as time expired. But okay, if you want to take that out, fine. One of four on threes in a fourth quarter in which the Wizards got carved up, including Bertans missing a deep 28-foot three-point attempt from beyond the arc with less than 10 seconds left and the Wizards trailing by three at 119-116. It's hard to be that mad about these Wizards losses at the Hawks. The Hawks are good. You know, it's easy to lose track sometimes in the NBA of who's good and who isn't because it does fluctuate to an extent. But the Atlanta Hawks have the fourth best record in the Eastern Conference, 39-31 and on the season. So yeah, I don't, I don't kill the Wizards for losing these last two games at the Hawks. The games continue to be closed. The Wizards continue to battle. And remember, they're playing without Bradley Beal over these last two games. However, the Wizards at this point pretty clearly are going to be the 10 seed in the Eastern Conference. Magic number remains at one. Two more cracks added in terms of you yourself reducing the magic number to zero by notching a victory. But remember, the Bulls, all they have to do is lose one more game and the Wizards get that final spot in the Eastern Conference play-in tournament. The losses are piling up for the Nationals. It remains too early to panic, but it has never been too early to be concerned. Heck, I went into this National season concerned, and at least right now, the concerns are being validated. Nationals now have lost seven of the team's last eight games, are 13-19 and 19 off a 5-2, 10-inning loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on Wednesday night. So troubled was the manager, Davey Martinez, after the game with what he was seeing from his guys, from his boys, that Davey held the team meeting after the game due to seeing guys with their heads held down. Said Davey, quote, we're going to win together and we're going to lose together. Brad Hand didn't lose the game. We're close. He said, we're close. It means you're close. Exactly, Brucey. Thank you. Continue, Davey. I feel it. It's just a matter of getting some timely hits. And quote, Davey emphasized he doesn't see a lack of effort. He just doesn't want his guys getting down. So I would say this is sort of what Davey does best in some ways, keeping teams together. We certainly saw that in 2019 when the Nationals, in case you haven't heard, went from 19 and 31 to winning the World Series. But What I kind of keep coming back to with the Nationals is this. You know, Davey is doing all he can. He continually tinkers with the lineup. He did so again for Wednesday night's loss. Davey now has fired the bullet that is the team meeting, and he ends up firing the bullet on May 12th of the season. But at the end of the day, I don't know that there's that much that Davey can do with this team and this roster. This just may not be a very good team. And 
I think we've seen signs of that so far this year. Now, things can change and players' seasons can get better, no doubt. But I just keep coming back to, I don't see the Nationals realistically being more than like an 82-83 win team this season. Like, that's what I thought the team would be going into the season. And so far, that's essentially what the team has been. And actually, right now, you'd say the team has been worse than that with the 13 and 19 overall record. I don't think the Nats are 13 and 19 bad, but I also don't think that the team is 20 and 12 good either. Like, I I think there's a middle ground here that the Nationals are, and I don't know that we're going to get much above that at any point this season. So you heard me mention Brad Hand. Brad Hand had another bad outing on Wednesday night. Brad Hand allowed three runs to earned in one official inning of work for his third consecutive bad outing and his second blown save chance over his previous three outings. Brad Hand over his last three games now, six runs, four earned in two and the third innings on six hits and three walks versus four strikeouts. Understand Brad Hand came into the season having not blown a save opportunity since August 2019. He now has two blown save chances over his last three appearances. He gave up a run in the top of the ninth, gave up a one-out game-tying solo homer to Odubel Herrera to tie the game at two. Hand then issued a two-out full-count hit-by-pitch of Andrew McCutcheon, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. But Hand got out of the inning. Hand stayed in the game to begin the top of the 10th with the lefty, the ex-nat, Bryce Harper batting. So Davey wanting to go lefty on lefty. I didn't have a problem with that. But Hand got got. He gave up a leadoff full-count single to Harper, despite Bryce having been down in the count at one point, one two. So put away territory there with Harper. Hand was unable to put away Bryce. Davey then pulled Hand in favor of Kyle Finnegan, and then Finnegan struggled. And that's the thing. The loss on Wednesday night wasn't just about Brad Hand, not by a long shot. Kyle Finnegan in the top of the 10th comes into the game with runners on first and third. Remember, extra innings now. You start with a runner on second. And Finnegan on his second pitch gave up an RBI single to Reese Hoskins. Finnegan then got Alec Bohm to ground into a 6-4-3 double play. But Finnegan then gave up back-to-back two-out RBI singles to Nick Maton and Andrew Knapp for a 5-2 Phillies lead. And that was it. Uh, this is not good that Brad Hand is in this way. Now, it's three straight bad outings. It's not like the guy's been horrendous throughout the year. Brad Hand has been a consistent reliever for years. There are so few of those. So I think there's a track record that fairly should be looked at here. Brad Hand had been very good so far this season up until these last three appearances, but he's struggling right now. And I do wonder if at least in the moment, Davey's going to start tinkering with some things in terms of who the ace reliever is, who the quote unquote closer is. Daniel Hudson has pitched well. He pitched well again on Wednesday night. Hudson, for all of his struggles last season, for all of his struggles during the Grapefruit League season, guy's got an ERA of 169 on the season. Hudson tossing a perfect top of the eighth on Wednesday night. Nats also got a good outing from Sam Clay. He tossed a scoreless top of the seventh, despite giving up a one-out single to pinch hitter Brad Miller, and then a two-out single to Gene Segura. Clay inducing a ground out off the bat of Bryce Harper for the third out in that inning. One of the particular pains, though, of Hand and Finnegan struggling on Wednesday night is that the Nats wasted another good outing from John Lester. John Lester making his third start as a national uh, again, was not dominant. You know, I don't know that he's ever going to be dominant in any start this season. He's not the pitcher that he was a few years ago, but Lester was effective. One run in six innings. That's beautiful. That's exactly what you'll take, realistically speaking, from John Lester in 2021. One run in six innings on four strikeouts versus six hits, uh, which were a double and five singles. Uh, also issued three walks through 97 pitches, 58 of which were strikes. Did throw 39 balls. Again, 
He's not dominant, okay? He's not lights out. He doesn't have much in the way of the clean inning. He puts guys on base, but the run prevention has been there with John Lester so far this season. Understand, John Lester now, over three starts with the Nats, has an ERA of 225. I mean, that's magnificent considering what John Lester had been. John Lester, the last two seasons for the Chicago Cubs, was not good. That he's giving the Nats what he's given them so far this season, especially with some of the issues Lester had to deal with, right? Parathyroid surgery during spring training, then the COVID-19 protocols that kept him from making his regular season debut until weeks into the season. 225 ERA over three starts is more than I think anyone could have reasonably hoped for. Now, again, he puts guys on base. John Lester's whip, his walks plus hits, divided by innings pitch so far, is 1.38. That's not very good. Uh, John Lester's strikeouts to walks ratio so far is 10 versus 7, okay? That's not exactly Max Scherzer-esque, especially over 16 innings. But 225 ERA, that is tremendous from John Lester. You look at some of the specifics of his outing on Wednesday night. Lester in a perfect top of the first struck out Bryce Harper on six pitches for the final out. Lester did give up a run in the top of the second, leadoff single by Reese Hoskins, full count walk of Alec Bohm, despite him having been down in the count of 1.12 and a went out first pitch RBI single by Andrew Knapp. Uh, Lester did then toss a scoreless top of the third, despite giving up a leadoff single to Andrew McCutcheon on a 1-2 pitch and a two-out double to Bryce Harper as Lester induced a double play off the bat of Gene Segura for the first two outs. Not the only time in the game that Lester's defense helped him out. How about what happened in a scoreless top of the fifth inning? Lester helped out big time by his former Chicago Cubs teammate, Kyle Schwarber. A great outfield assist by Oshwarby in throwing out Odubel Herrera at home for the third out on a Bryce Harper single to left field. Kyle Schwarber, look, when it comes to range, when it comes to actually catching the baseball, there are things to be concerned about. I mean, there's a reason historically that Kyle Schwarber's defensive metrics aren't good, but Kyle Schwarber does have an arm. And Kyle Schwarber's throw per stat cast on that outfield assist that nailed Odubel Herrera out at home, that was a 91.3 mile per hour throw by Kyle Schwarber. League average is 87.7 miles per hour. Kyle Schwarber, 91.3 miles per hour on that throw from left field to nail Herrera at home for the out. And did you know this? Because I did not. Kyle Schwarber, with that outfield assist, now has 31 outfield assists since the start of the 2017 season. That is the most among left fielders in Major League Baseball. Who'd have thunk that? That Kyle Schwarber has the most outfield assists among left fielders in MLB since the start of the 2017 season. That number now is up to 31. But the Nationals, again, struggle offensively. Just two runs in this game on Wednesday night. I mean, we can pick apart Brad Hand and Kyle Finnegan and talk about what the Nationals are getting from a starting pitching standpoint. But the Nationals offense remains by far the number one problem with this team. The Nationals don't score runs. They again did not score runs. The Nats didn't on Wednesday night. So it was again a new look lineup from Davey Martinez. He is tinkering with this lineup like something fierce so far this year. Andrew Stevenson was the leadoff man. Trey Turner was number two in the order. Juan Soto batted third. Ryan Zimmerman batted fourth. Josh Bell did not start on Wednesday night. And the results were at best mixed, okay? The Nationals for the game, just two runs, just one for 13 with runners in scoring position. I mean, in fairness to the Nats, they did finish with 10 hits, did have three walks, put guys on base. But again, ultimately, the run output wasn't there. Two runs is not enough to win 
in Major League Baseball in 2021. Stevenson as the leadoff batter and starting center fielder. He went one for four, had a nice bunt single, uh, one out bunt single in the bottom of the fifth, but beyond that, didn't do much. Trey Turner, one for five, had a nice double, one out double in the bottom of the ninth, but he struck out in a big spot, struck out on five pitches with runners on first and second and one out in the bottom of the fifth. Juan Soto, number three batter, one for four with a single and an intentional walk. But Juan Soto struck out in a big spot. After Turner struck out with runners on first and second in the bottom of the fifth, Soto struck out with runners on first and second for the final out in that bottom of the fifth inning. Very disappointing in that spot. You have runners on base for your two best batters, and each guy ends up striking out. Trey Turner and Juan Soto. Ryan Zimmerman, who people like me have been begging to see more of, he started at first base. He was the cleanup batter. He did have a double, leadoff double in the Nationals' two-run sixth inning, but he too flopped in a big spot, grounding into an inning-ending double play with runners on first and second, one out, and the game tied at two in the bottom of the ninth inning. Also, Davey did that thing, which I can't stand, of batting the pitcher eighth and then batting a position player ninth in the lineup. Now, Lester did have a hit, in the game. So I guess maybe I need to tip the cap to Davey on that one. I don't know. Uh, I still don't like it. Uh, but Jordy Mercer was the number nine batter. Jordy Mercer, not Josh Harrison, was the Nats starting second baseman. Mercer went 0 for 4. He too came up small in a big spot, struck out swinging on three pitches with the bases loaded two outs and the Nats nursing a 2-1 lead in the bottom of the eighth inning. And that Jordy Mercer fail loomed large with Brad Hand giving up the game-tying homer to Odubel Herrera in the top of the ninth inning. If there was an offensive bright spot, it was starting Castro, starting third baseman, number six batter, four for five with four singles, including an RBI single. Castro had a one-out single, bottom of the second, two-out single, bottom of the fourth, one-out first pitch RBI single in the Nats two-run sixth inning, and a two-out single in the bottom of the eighth inning. So that's nice. I mean, four hits, you don't poo-poo that, especially with this Nationals offense this season. But Starling Castro should not be one of your major offensive bright spots. I should not be highlighting Starling Castro in this segment right now. And even with the hits that he's accumulating and the runs batted in that he's accumulating, Castro is tied for the team lead in RBI with Trey Turner at 15. Starling Castro, like many Nationals players, is hitting for like zero power on the season. So a bunch of singles, okay, but not much beyond those singles. He's batting 300. He's got a 344 on base. Those are good numbers. But Castro is slugging a mere 383 on the season. I mean, the discrepancy between his batting average and his slugging percentage is just 83 points. It's not supposed to work that way, okay? He can hit and he can get on base and that's valuable. He puts balls in play, that's valuable, but he hits for like no power. 383 is the Starling Castro slugging percentage on the season. The Nats don't hit for enough power. They don't hit enough homers. You know, they did have a triple on Wednesday night, but it was a fluke triple. It was a triple by Alex Avila, who was a starting catcher at number seven batter. He had a one-out first pitch RBI triple in the Nationals' two-run sixth inning on a pretty funny play, I have to say, and a play that makes you laugh, especially if you're a Nats fan with who ended up involved in it. So Avila sent a fly ball that landed between the Phillies center fielder, Odubel Herrera, and the Phillies right fielder, yes, our pal, Bryce Harper, on the warning track. And then Herrera and Harper crashed into each other. So this is like one of those classic blooper plays one of those classic, you know, plays, if you remember the show This Week in Baseball with Mel Allen, this is like a classic play that would be shown on that show if it still existed the way it used to exist. 
Uh, but that was something else. Harper and Herrera crashing into each other, but Avila getting essentially a fluke triple. I mean, credit him for hitting the ball out there, I guess, but that wasn't a true triple. That wasn't some shot off the wall, some shot into the gap, some shot down the line. That was a fly ball that should have been caught, but wasn't, and Avila ends up getting credited with a triple, but like that's what the Nats have to rely on these days in terms of racking up extra base hits. Avila did have a two-out seven-pitch walk, too, in the bottom of the eighth inning. Uh, also with the Nationals, they have activated Wander Suero. Uh, the Nats on Wednesday returning Suero from his rehab assignment and reinstating Suero from the 10-day injured list, which he'd been on since April 18th due to a left oblique strain. The corresponding roster move, by the way, does end up being the Nationals optioning Paolo Espino to AAA Rochester. I'm going to give Paolo Espino a lot of credit. I've had some fun with the guy and, you know, I should. He's a, he's a guy in his 30s. His name is Paolo Espino and the Nationals summoned him uh, nobody else to make a spot start when Steven Strasburg got hurt. It tells you a lot about the lack of starting pitching depth for the Nationals. But Paolo Espino ended up doing a really nice job in his extended time at the major league level. ERA of 164 over these last few weeks. And he very much deserves to be back with the big league club at some point this season. Nationals are in a tough spot right now, okay? And they're staring at another sweep here. Remember, the Nationals got swept by the Atlanta Braves last week then lost 2-3 at the New York Yankees over the weekend, now are on the doorstep of being swept over three games by the Phillies at Nationals Park. Game three, Thursday afternoon, 105 first pitch, Patrick Corbin versus Zach Eflin. Eflin is having a good season, over seven starts this year. He's got an ERA of 338, has an ERA plus of 117. Now, there's also this with Zach Eflin, and this is odd. Entering games on Wednesday, Zach Eflin had the lowest walks per nine innings in the majors at 0.596, but also was tied for the most hits allowed in the majors at 48. So if you don't walk, but you put balls in play, you do well against Zach Eflin. And actually, Starling Castro fits that description in some way. So maybe the Nats can get to Eflin on Thursday, but overall run prevention has been there for Eflin so far this year. With Patrick Corbin, I don't know what to expect. I mean, at times he's looked good. At times he's looked awful. In his last start, the 11-4 win at the Yankees on Friday night, uh, Corbin was just so-so. Three runs in six innings on 81 pitches. Clearly, the Nationals need a good outing from Corbin. But even more clearly, the Nationals need the offense to wake up and get going some way, somehow. Two runs is not good enough. I mean, here are your Nationals run outputs going back over these last few games, okay? Two, 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 three in an 11 inning game. 11, okay, that's good. But two, three, one, three. Enough of this, okay? Give me five. Give me six. Give me big, fat, crooked numbers on the scoreboard. Nationals haven't come close to providing nearly enough of those so far this season. So the Washington football team got Charles Leno Jr. on Wednesday, but the Wizards lost, the Nationals lost, and the Orioles lost as well. Another loss for the O's. Wednesday afternoon, another win for the New York Mets as well. O's losing at the Mets 7-1 to complete a two-game sweep. O's losing for a fifth time in six games, falling to 16-21. and The Mets winning their seventh consecutive game. They're now 18-13 and on the season. And if you care about early season MLB standings, New York Mets in first place in the National League East at 18-13, and five and a half games ahead of the 13 and 19 Nationals. So two things with this game from an Orioles perspective. Number one, Matt Harvey, formerly the Dark Knight of Gotham, struggling in his return to City Field. Harvey in this 7-1 loss on Wednesday afternoon, seven runs in four and the third innings. He gave up eight hits, which were a triple, a double, and six singles. 
also issued a walk, had four strikeouts through 78 pitches, 50 of which were strikes. It was a shame to see this because Harvey has been a nice story overall so far over these last few months, but he struggled in this game at the Mets. Harvey in the bottom of the second gave up three runs on just eight pitches. That's hard to do. He began the bottom of the second in the following manner. Leadoff double by Pete Alonso on an 0-2 pitch. Single by Dominic Smith. First pitch two-run triple by Kevin Pillar. And then a first pitch RBI single by Jose Peraza. And that's kind of how the game ended up going for Harvey. Now, he got cheered quite nicely, actually, by fans at City Field prior to his first plate appearance. And he, during his virtual postgame press conference, admitted that he had to hold back tears when he got cheered. Harvey also said the following, quote, obviously the last couple years weren't the way I wanted them to go. There was a lot of between the injuries and I think me getting in my own way and causing some of those problems. I feel for them. I feel for the fans. Maybe I let them down, end quote. How about that? Matt Harvey really has been humbled over these last few years with what has gone on with him. And you know what? If he's learned some lessons, more power to him. It's been quite the ride for Matt Harvey. He was, like I said, the dark knight of Gotham. He had some big seasons, some great seasons for the Mets. You know, you think back to like 2012, 2013, 2015, when the Mets won the National League pennant. But he underwent Tommy John surgery in October 2013. And then the real big blow, surgery to address thoracic outlet syndrome in July 2016. And he really has never been the same since that. Matt Harvey, over the last five seasons coming into this season, 2016 through 2020, an ERA of 582 over 411 and two-thirds innings. Harvey has become a journeyman. Harvey, since the start of the 2018 season, has pitched for the Mets, the Cincinnati Reds, the Los Angeles Angels, the Kansas City Royals, now the Orioles. Has done some nice things over these last few months, but uh, clearly did not have a very good game in this game at the Mets on Wednesday afternoon. The other thing that stood out to me from an Orioles perspective in this game was Keegan Aiken making his 2021 regular season debut. So Keegan Aiken was supposed to be one of the guys who opened the season in the Orioles rotation, but things did not go well for Keegan Aiken at all during the exhibition season. Keegan Aiken over four games, including two starts in the 2021 Grapefruit League season, 10 runs in nine innings on 15 hits and seven walks versus 14 strikeouts. The O's on March 26th optioned Aiken to AAA Norfolk. This was an at least somewhat surprising move, again, considering that Aiken had been considered likely to make the Orioles season opening rotation. But again, he struggled mightily during exhibition play. Well, the O's this past Monday recalled Aiken from AAA Norfolk, and he made a bullpen appearance on Wednesday afternoon. Perfect bottom of the sixth that included two strikeouts, though. One of those was of the Mets starting pitcher, Taiwan Walker, who, if you watch the game, had in it one of the great give-up plate appearances that you'll ever see a starting pitcher have as a batter. Taiwan Walker just standing there, bat on his shoulder, allowing himself to be struck out by Matt Harvey. It was a joke of an at-bat. This is why pitchers should not hit, okay? This stuff about, well, it adds to the strategy of the game. Not nearly enough strategy is added to compensate for the... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Truckload, the plethora of non-competitive at-bats that take place over the course of a season. Pitchers are horrendous hitters. For every one Madison Bumgarner or one LeVon Hernandez, there are 15 Taiwan Walkers, guys who are clueless when they are hitting, guys who have no interest in hitting. It's not good for the game, and pitchers should not be batting. We need a universal DH. I think we will get that, but we should have it this season. We certainly should have it by the start of next season. Orioles are off on Thursday. They, on Friday night at 7.05, begin a six-game homestand with game wood of a three-game series against the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Friday's installment of the show, I will discuss something that I made mention of earlier in the week. Ron Rivera recently opened up about his current philosophy on franchise quarterbacks. These were very interesting and I believe telling comments. This is definitely something we need to discuss. Discuss it, we shall, on Friday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Also on Friday's show, special guest Peter Hassett, co-founder of Russian Machine Never Breaks, the great Capitals blog, as we'll go in-depth on the Cap series against the Boston Bruins in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Game one, Saturday night at 7.15 at Capital One Arena. And we'll have game three for the Nationals against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park to get into as the Nats try to avoid the three-game sweep. Oh, by the way, this podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, shot up 10 spots to number 32 in the country in the latest installment of the Apple podcast rankings in the U.S. football category. So thank you very much for that. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. Hogan, I'm waiting. Woo!